Well, good morning again to you all. Um, it's glad to be here with you again today as we look into the text of God's Word. Um, pastor had mentioned to me that he had a four-week study uh, planned out for before Easter, but uh, he didn't want me to preach his message for him. And I wonder why, but well. Be excited to see him. Hopefully next week he'll be better. Uh, he'll be over this cold that he has and that we'll be able to hear what God had him prepare for us and we'll look forward to that next week. But for this week, as we begin to look into the Word of God this morning, what would you mention, just a quick question for you, what would you mention are some of the greatest examples of the sovereignty of God? are the greatest examples of seeing God being in control of different events throughout Scripture. Just something to think in your mind, just to uh, get some of the ball rolling in there. We see, for instance, we could say that God providing enough flour and oil for the widow in her household until the famine was over because she did according to the word of Elijah. We see in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, we see that Elijah was told by God, go to this widow and ask this widow for the meal. And she was preparing her final meal for her household, and Elijah asked that he would have it, and in return, God would provide her enough flour and oil from then on out to the end of the famine. And God did promise that. That was an example of God is in control. God is sovereign here. We see another example is God providing quail and manna for the children of Israel while they're in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 16. Uh, they, had, uh, they had left uh, Egypt at that point. They were in the wilderness, and God had provided manna and quail for them throughout that time. This was an example of God being sovereign. We see also, moving to the New Testament, there are, in the Gospels, there are numerous accounts of individuals, those being healed. We see the blind man, the woman of blood, the man of leprosy, these very common accounts and narratives we see of people being healed. God is in control of each of these. We see the list could go on and on, and I'm sure there's other instances, other narratives, other accounts in Scripture that you have thought of that say, hey, God was in control in this situation. But there is one account that we want to look into today, and we see that this individual was destined for certain death under the hand of Herod. We see this, and uh, I'm, I titled this as The Deliverance of Peter. We see this found in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And I'd encourage you this morning, if you have your text or scripture or your phone or whatever you have before you, that you turn to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And while you're turning there, I have two points. Uh, I think it's funny because when I was uh, in Bible college uh, studying, our, our professor always said, as a preacher, you've got to have three points. Three points for everything. It's got to be perfectly lined out. But today I'm going to do opposite of what he said, and I'm only going to do two points. And you guys probably benefit from that because there's a lot in this text of Scripture. So today we're going to look at the persecution by Herod in verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to see the deliverance by God in verses 6 through 11. So as you found your place there in Acts chapter 12, we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And we're going to read all the way through verse 11. 
beginning in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him and attending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And he, and he, so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you for, again, this morning that you've given us to be able to come here this morning, to be able to open your word, to be able to look at this account in Scripture that is recorded for us. Father, I pray that as, as, as you speak through me, that I would speak your words, that it wouldn't be my words, but that they'd be yours. And Father, that we'd just be able to learn of the account of these three individuals, Herod, James, and Peter, and all the events that happened to follow. And Father, we thank you again. We pray that your guidance would be on this morning. We praise things in your name. Amen. So as we see... Starting off in Acts 12, we see it was during this time that persecution was beginning to spread throughout the region. We see this all the way from the beginning of Acts, when the church was founded, all the way up through, even there in Acts chapter 11, we see that there was persecution happening. It was beginning to spread throughout the region. Word of the perse persecution of Stephen was beginning to spread as well. We see that in Acts 11:19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. We see there that the persecution of Stephen, way back in a few chapters before, was spreading. It was continuing. The church was growing. The church was building. People were becoming saved. People were hearing the word of God. It was even during this time that Gentiles were being saved by the grace of God. The church was growing and spreading fast in many regions throughout the known area. However, there was a certain group of people that did not like or accept the fact that Christianity was growing so rapidly during this time. 
Therefore, Herod desired to please the people of the region he ruled. These were the Jews that he desired to please. This resulted in, and we see the first point as we look at the text of Scripture, the persecution by Herod. We see this is Herod. This is what he is beginning to do. I think it's interesting to note here that in Acts chapter 12, this is the only account we have of this king, King Herod. Now, you might be wondering, well, no, wait, we got way back in Matthew, there's a Herod there. We got King Herod also in Luke. We got, we got quite a few different Herods here. But as we study and we look into this chapter, we see that this is King Herod Agrippa I, this king here. And he's only mentioned in Acts 12. The only mention we have of him is in Acts 12, 1, uh, where it says... Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands. So he has entered into this time period. And if you uh, jump ahead, we see in Acts, that same chapter, verse 23, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. We see between chapter 12, verse 1 and 23, we have the bookends of this king. How his life how he came in, and how his life ended. It's a pretty gruesome way of how his life ended. But we can see how God used this King Herod, Agrippa I, for his glory, even in the midst of an evil king, an evil reign that he had. I did a little bit of research just looking into this. I mean, who is this King Herod Agrippa? We only have this one chapter. We only have this little bit of information about him. So who is this king? Well, some information about his family. He is the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, if you remember, uh, is the one that murdered John the Baptist back in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. He's the one that put John the Baptist to death in order to repay the person that he had there. We also see that he was the one that questioned Jesus during his trial period in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. So this is his nephew. This is part of his family. We see where he's involved. We also have his, his grandfather. He was the son, the grandson of Herod the Great, who had all the babies, two years or younger, if you remember this account, of Bethlehem put to death in order to kill Jesus Christ. This is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Herod the Great was so zealous, he wanted his own kingdom, he didn't want uprising, and after he was realized that he was tricked by the, by the magis, the people that went to see Jesus, that brought gifts, that he decided Jesus must be in this age somewhere, so we're going to kill all the babies two years and under in this town because this is where he was born. But we know from the text of Scripture that Jesus Christ was not there. They left. So we see that this is his family heritage. We have Herod, who is judging, killing uh, other Christians. We have Herod, his grandfather, who's killing innocent people just to kill Jesus Christ. The family of King Herod was a very prestigious, powerful family. And the king simply followed in line with his family. Well, then you say, well, how, how did we get to him ruling over this area? Well, Herod Agrippa I was ruler over this large area of Palestine during this time. These areas included Judea and Samaria. So he ruled this area until A.D. 45. He was in control of this area, 
And because this was the prominent area, most of these people were Jewish people that were in under his control, under his uh, reign there. So we see going back, now that we know a little bit more about who Herod is, how he came in, he's coming into the picture while the church is growing, while the church is expanding, the church is taking root, and then you got the other group of people on the side here that are Jewish, and they're saying, you know what, we really don't like this. We don't like the fact that the church is growing because we believe that the person who died on the cross was not our Savior. That was just a normal man. And they're watching all these events happening. So what does King Herod do there in First? One, we see now about the same time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. We see King Herod desired to persecute the church by killing those who were of or belonged to the church. This would include anyone who took the name disciple, or in other words, Christian. We see that in Acts 11.26 where disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They took that new name, Christian, which is a Christ follower. We see there that he began to reach out, to start to take different people out from the church, beginning to persecute them, to kill them. And as a result, we see that the Jews were like, wow, hey, this is great. We're glad that you're killing people. Our ruler's finally doing something good for us. These people are following false gods. They're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. This is a false religion. And he saw that it pleased them. We see there the word vax in, the K- in King James. The word vax there is an interesting word. Other way of saying it is mentioning is to harass, to mistreat, or to lay violent hands on. Either way you look at the word vax there in verse 1, It means to, you're going to do something harmful to someone. You have intentional purposes to harm that person, to remove them, to kill them, or do whatever. And we see this harassment or mistreatment begin with the Apostle James. We see there in verse 2, and he killed James with with the brother of John with the sword. So the question comes up, who is this James? Again, this is another individual in text of Scripture that we have to confirm who this person is because there is James, the son of Zebedee, the James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the brother or half-brother of Jesus Christ. So we're looking at there's possible three different possibilities, but we see the first clue of who this individual is. And there in verse 2, the brother of John. So we understand that this James was the brother of John, and then we go to other texts in Scripture correlating them together throughout the Gospels. And we see that in Luke chapter 5, 9 through 10, that he was originally a fisherman before being called by Jesus. There, too, he was with his brother John. It's, not, it's, it's until you get to Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that we see that he was of the twelve apostles and the son of Zebedee. That's where he's mentioned. So we now know that this James, who was killed by Herod, was James, the son of Zebedee. He was, he was one of the twelve apostles. So what prominence did this individual have? Why did King Herod want to kill this person? What, what, what role did he have in the church? What was his significance? Well, we see in Matthew 17, he was present at the Mount of Transfiguration along with Peter and John. 
He was there when Jesus Christ was transfigured before them. He was there with Jesus Christ, these other apostles. We see that he was also present in the Garden of Gethsemane along Peter and John again. He was there before when Christ went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray to have God to remove this this crucifixion that was about to come upon him. He was there with them. He was there with them. We see also that during this time, this is who James was. James, the son of Zebedee, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He followed Jesus Christ. Therefore, he was building the church, sharing the gospel, sharing to other people who Jesus Christ was. He was a prominent figure in the church. We see also, as another side note, that James was therefore killed by the sword. We see that this... There in verse 2, when he was killed by the sword, this normally meant that it was done by beheading when, when uh, they were killed with the sword. This would fulfill what Jesus had mentioned in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23. And just, uh, just as a side note, I'll go ahead and read that for you, turning back to Matthew 20, verses 20 through 23. Uh, The text of Scripture says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. Verse 23, And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to set on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. So we see there that Jesus Christ had said, Fine, you will suffer as I have suffered. And for, P- for James, that involved him to die by the sword, to be beheaded for the name of Christ. And he here was the first martyr uh, of the apostles, the first one to be killed by King Herod. We see that once King Herod did that, he took James, he beheaded him, had him killed. There is a huge excitement among the Jews. The Jews said, this is great. This prominent person is gone. He is no more. And he saw that it, it, it pleased them. We see that in verse 3. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to further to take Peter also. Interesting to note that the Jews were excited. They were pleased. So what did Herod do as a ruler? When your people are happy underneath you what, as a ruler, what would you do? Well, hey, I'm just going to go find the next guy. I'm going to take care of him, and I'm going to go find the next guy. The more people that like me, the more power I get, the better I look before my other peers, my other people that are above me, the greater I am. The more power I'm able to take on to myself. People look at me. Look at me. So that's what he decides to do. James is killed. Now Peter is the next one in the line that he is desiring to find. Herod desires to please the people he is in rule over. 
therefore he begins to search out for Peter. He begins to send out his, his men, his individuals, to search out, to find, where did, where's Peter? Go find him, because he's the next one to be taken. So we see there in verse 3, starting in verse 3, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. There's a little, in the King James, there's some brackets there. It's a little interesting note. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Going on to verse 4, And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to the four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison. And we'll stop there for right now. But that little phrase there, Them were the days of unleavened bread. This was a, a feast that the Jews would practice the week before the crucifixion or Easter. However, they would practice this before the crucifixion. It was the Passover that they would practice this feast of unleavened bread. We see Jesus Christ participated in this feast before his crucifixion at the end of the week. And so that way, the Jews continued with this feast, with this ritual that they had at the, this time, which was the, fe the feast of unleavened bread. And because of this feast of unleavened bread, we see that the Jews and their law would not allow any person, no matter who they were, to be sentenced, condemned, tried, or killed during this time, during this week. And that is true, because we see that with Jesus Christ in the Gospels, where he was not sentenced, condemned, or killed until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was just Jewish law that they weren't allowed. So what does King Herod do? King Herod says, okay, fine. I, okay, I, I, can't, I can't kill him this week, because otherwise there's going to be this huge uproar, and then everybody's going to be mad at me. And I don't want people to be mad at me. I don't want them to be angry. I want them to be excited. I, I want the power. I want the prestige. So we see that he took... Peter, and he put him in jail. Whereas with James, we have here in the text that, oh, he, he found James and he killed him. I mean, simple as that. He was killed. But with Peter, we have more information that was given that he took him and put him in prison because this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see here just uh, some history. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a religious event to be kept. It's first mentioned in Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 through 15 but also mentioned in Exodus 23, 15. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month, Abib. For in it thou camest out of, from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. Therefore, this was a religious gathering that the Jews held to very diligently. This was a sacred event that they held from the Old Testament text all the way through. They held very dearly to it. Since he was trying to please them and find favor in the people, because this is the majority of the area that he ruled over, he decided to wait until after the Passover to execute Peter. He decided, we're just going to hold off. We're going to wait. We're going to wait until this is done. But he's like, now i got another problem. i got another problem that i got to deal with. And we see that in verse 4. He put him in prison, but what are we going to do? We we're put him in prison, but this guy has, he has a track history of somehow escaping prison. I mean, he, he is really good. He's very clever. He knows how to get out of prison. Don't know how he does it, but he gets out of prison. 
And so we see that King Herod takes four quaternions of soldiers. This is, uh, these soldiers would keep him in attending after Easter. Therefore, we see down, moving down into verse 6, just looking ahead, these four group of soldiers. So you would have four soldiers on a six-hour shift. And then after that six hours, they would change out with another group of four soldiers. And that would happen, four quaternions makes 24 hours. And they would continue to rotate the shift each time. Two of these soldiers would be chained directly to Peter. They would be chained right beside him. The other two would be put at the gate, at the doors, to guard them, to not let anybody in or let anybody out. One way in, one way out. So we see that this is what Herod had set up. Herod had said, we're going to make sure Peter does not get out. Because, as mentioned before, he was arrested three times prior. We see this in Acts 4.3. This was his first arrest. And they laid hands on them. This is Peter and John, where had the hands laid on them, and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now even tied. So this time, he, the first time he was arrested with John, he was put in prison, but then the next day they were allowed to go. They were released. The second time, however, in Acts 5.18, they laid hands on the apostles and put them in common prison. This time, when he went into prison, he was there. It was an angel of the Lord that came in that took him out. So this time, he wasn't just released by the people. He was released by God. He was released by an angel of the Lord. So therefore, it, it makes you think Herod probably knew this track record. Herod knew that, well, Peter, he keeps finding an escape route. He gets out each time. And the reason why they were put in prison was simply because they were preaching salvation and healing in the name of Jesus Christ. In each of these instances, they were found in the, in the tabernacle preaching. They were healing people. And you know what? The Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, they didn't like that. They wanted to lay hands on him. They wanted to put him away. This is building up to why King Herod desired to kill these prominent people or just regular people in the church. And Peter was the next one to have this happen. So we see here that Herod had probably more than likely put Peter, Herod had put Peter in maximum security. He had him chained up tightly. He had a lot of rotations. He had a lot of soldiers guarding and making sure Peter would not escape. I just have a a side note, just a thought to think about. Peter here is a great example of someone who had genuine faith in God and was willing to die for Christ. I mean, you think, Peter here, he's been arrested once, released. Arrested twice, was released by an angel of the Lord. Now is arrested the third time, and this time he's not sure if he's going to get out. He's unsure what's going to happen and he's sitting there, and it's getting closer and closer to the end of the feast, the end of the time, and he knows that he's going to be brought before the people and instantly executed. He knows his time is coming. Peter knew that he would die for Christ, and he was facing certain death by the end of the week. However, he held true to God. He would not waver in his faith. We see that each time he was released from prison, what did he go back and do? He went right back to preaching. He went right back to sharing God's word. Showing people the salvation, healing people, and building the church, following God, reading scripture. And we see that he just went right back to it. 
He wouldn't waver in his faith. And it begs us who are saved, who are children of God by the grace of God, to examine our lives and say, how willing am I to face persecution for Christ or even die for him? It was, it's just a, a thought. I know here in America we don't have much persecution, but how willing are we to be, look different, to stand out among our peers, to, to be looked upon like, oh, that, that, that person, they're different. There's something different about that person. I also mentioned and I ask you today that if you're unsure whether or not you are saved and going to heaven, don't wait. Because who knows what will happen today or tomorrow. We're not certain. We're not certain of tomorrow. Only God knows what will come tomorrow. So we see in just these first five verses, what, what can we learn? What can we take away? What can we grasp from these five verses? Well, you might be saying, well, I don't know. I mean, we got King Herod. Well, he's dead. And James, he's dead. And this is just old uh, accounts. And the only thing we see in here is, well, Herod was in power, James was killed with a sword, and now Peter's in prison aiming towards death. So this looks like a lot of persecution, looks like a lot of people dying, a lot of people dying for their faith. Well, how does that apply to me? I mean, we don't have that in America, and yes, we do. Yes, we don't have that in America. We don't see people being taken to the side and killed. But what about the church around the world, our brothers and sisters? The voice of the martyrs is a big one. You hear accounts. Uh, there's other, other uh, stuff out there that tells of different individuals through the difficulties that they're dealing with. I mean, people are just simply like us here in church, and the door is open and everybody's killed. Or they're given a choice saying, hey, are you willing to follow Christ to death or do you want to go? It happens every day. And just a glimpse ahead we see in verse 5, so what, what, what can we do about it? Prayer. We here in America, we can pray for our brothers and sisters. We can see and pray for them, that they would stand strong, that they would stand bold in face of persecution. Just as Peter rested three times and he didn't waver. Bringing it to modern times, we see it is at this point that we may wonder why God allows for things to happen. For instance, what's happening currently that we prayed for this morning over in Ukraine? It's a horrible situation. Many, many people are dying. Many things are uh, not right. Uh, it's just a horrible situation. But we see even in the midst of this horrible event, people are being saved. I'm not sure if, if you were here Wednesday night or were able to watch Wednesday night when Pastor was mentioning about uh, different people who are still in Ukraine who are willing and I won't mention names, but they are willing to stay in areas that are under very hot conflict, and they're willing to go and stay, go to the bomb shelters and share God's word, care for the people that are there. The word is being spread. You not only have the people there, but you have the people who are also in Poland and the surrounding neighbors who are taking refugees in. They're sharing God's word to them. People are being saved. And you might say, well, this is a horrible situation. Well, think for a second. God is in control. God has a plan for everything that happens. And yes, even though it's a horrible situation, this is a great time to be sharing God's Word. People who were probably hard to God's Word, didn't want nothing to do with it, 
are now softened because they're seeing the effects of war. They're seeing, whoa, life is short. What is afterlife? What comes after that? So we see that God is in control. Going back to the text of Scripture, God is in control. Peter's there still in prison. He knows God is in control. Something is going to happen. Not sure exactly what's going to happen. But God will take care of him, even if it means that he will face certain punishment, which is death. So we see, going back to to the text of Scripture and going into the second point, now that James has been executed, Herod's in command, Herod is getting praise, Herod's getting glory, we see that Peter is soon to be killed. Peter is the next one in the plans of Herod to have killed. So we notice, secondly, the deliverance by God. And we see this in verse 5 5 through 11. This is like an amazing text of Scripture, Uh, just just to read through it. And uh, we'll just go verse by verse through here. But we see that the church begins to pray there in the second half of verse 5. So Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. While he's in prison, while he's suffering, while he's dealing with all these guard changes, the weeks are going by, the hours are going by, it's getting closer to the time of his execution. We see there that, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. The church continued to pray fervently for Peter. The moment that they heard that Peter was in prison, they began to pray. The church also knew that Peter was facing certain death, and therefore they prayed on behalf of Peter. Just to think, what is one of the best weapons a church has? I read this in a commentary reading through. Not only do we have the Word of God, but we also have prayer. And when you pray to God, it's just not simply we're saying words to Him. We're actually going before His throne. We're actually taking other people and we're bringing him before God and we're pleading on their behalf for them. We're praying for them. We're asking God to deliver them or have God's will with them. Prayer is a critical, critical weapon of the church. The church at this instance knew that they could not do anything to get Peter out. There was too many Jews that wanted him killed. Herod was destined to kill him. He was guarded by many, many guards. So what did they do? They prayed. And prayer is the biggest weapon a church can have. That's what we can do for those who are around the world who are suffering as well. We see moving on to verses 6 through 10 that God answered the prayer of the church. God answered prayer. The following day, the night right before he was to be executed, God wasn't finished with Peter. God had a plan for Peter. We see beginning there, there in verse 6, uh, we'll read through, And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. So we're getting, we're getting the backdrop, we're getting what's going on here. Peter's in prison, he's got two guards at the door, he's got two guards beside him, chained with these heavy iron chains. Moving on to verse 7, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, And a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise, up, quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. So we see he's here with all these guards, and all of a sudden there's this bright light. Angel of the Lord says, Arise, it's time to go. He smote him on the side. 
He raised him up. And it's just amazing to think, that bright light didn't wake up those guards. We see there in verse 7, a bright light shone in the darkness. Those prisons back then weren't like the prisons where we have today with windows. Those prisons might have had a, had a hole in the cave above where the sunlight would come down. But for the most part, it was just a dirty, wet, nasty place to be. Very, very dark. And this light of the angel shone throughout the prison. We see that Peter was able to, told to stand up. The chains fell off. He was told to put on his sandals, to put on your garment or cloak. And he began to exit the jail. We see moving on into verse 8. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And he, so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. So we see that the chains fell off. The guards are still sleeping. Chains fell off. Bright light. This is strange. And then we see that he got put on his sandals. He put on his garment. And the angel said to follow me. Verse 9, And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. We sort of got to stop and pause there for a minute and put yourself in his situation. I mean, the next day you're going to be killed, and you got all these guards, you got all these people around you. This bright light didn't wake nobody up. The chains fell off, they didn't wake nobody up. You're about to go through these two guards, they didn't wake up. Doors are opening, they're making all this noise. That didn't wake them up. And then we're going to open up this great big gate that goes into the city. That didn't wake nobody up. And then all of a sudden, when you get outside the city, we'll see there in verse 10, when we read it in a minute, that the angel disappears. And I mean, you've got to imagine putting yourself in Peter's shoes and saying, wow, I wonder what happened. It's got to be a dream. It's really got to be a dream. So there in verse 10, when they were past the first and the second ward, or guards, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord, and they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. We see there in verse 11, And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the people of the Jews. We see there that in verse 11, that he realized this wasn't a dream. I, I am out of prison. I am safe. God took care of me. God led me out with his angel. And those guards are still sleeping. They don't know what happened. They will know what happens to them tomorrow. Because in that time, you left, you lost one prisoner. It meant certain death for you. They didn't know that was coming to them yet, but they will know soon. Later in that text, it does say that, that they were killed by Herod. So he knew that Peter knew it was not a dream in verses 10 through 11. Three times had Peter been in prison. Three times has he been put in prison, and twice he was released by God. He was let out by the angel of the Lord. And also, he was released from Herod. He was released from the Jews. He was not going to face certain execution or certain punishment. God had a plan for him. This was a sovereign act of God, a way of God saying, I'm in control. You might think you're in control, but ultimately I am. What happens is because I'm in control. While the church, so just, just in concluding and wrapping up in 
looking at what we learn through text. The church prayed for Peter. God answered that prayer. It's an example of us for us today that God does answer prayer. God always answers prayer as God does not always answer prayer as we would want Him to answer prayer. There's times that we'll pray and God might answer it in a different way. But then when you look back and you look at how things worked out, we realize that was the better way. God had the better plan, the better uh, design there for that. It also shows us in this text of Scripture that God is sovereign in all things. All things that happen. Even though James was killed by the sword, we don't know why. But he was killed by the sword. God had a plan for that. We don't know in text of Scripture, but people probably were saved through that. It was probably used, just like Stephen was used, to spread God's word and encourage them and to bolden them to share God's word. But he allowed Peter to escape prison by the angel of the Lord. I just wanted to look at this text of Scripture today. and just It's a reminder to us to always continually trust in God, to follow His way. It may not be our way, but it's His way, and that's the correct way, to follow Him, to lean on Him, and to learn from the life of Peter and James of the, what they went through. And a reminder to us that prayer is powerful. God answers prayer. And we'll, with that, we'll close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again. And Father, we thank you for this account that we have in Scripture of Peter, James, and King Herod, and all the church, and those who prayed for him. And Father, may it be a reminder to us of our desire, our need to be praying constantly and fervently for those who are around us, who are in different situations and conflicts. And Father, that we also may learn that we are to stay bold for you, to not waver in our faith, to put you first in all that we do in all our lives. And Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.